Welcome to Spirit of the Hall, our Teddy Hall podcast series brought to you for Orlarians by Orlarians. My name is Ollie Belcher and I am the president of the St. Edmund Hall Alumni Association. I am delighted to bring you conversations with some of Teddy Hall's most fascinating alumni, fellows and staff. This episode is with Congressman James Himes, who tells us about his journey as a Rhodes Scholar to Teddy Hall and how he learned pretty quickly at the Randolph Hotel about some of the rugby and rowing traditions. I had the experience of being stripped in a matter of two or three seconds entirely of my clothing in the lobby of the Randolph Hotel. This January, he found himself in the Capitol building when it was stormed by Trump supporters. I'd always assumed that, uh, you know, I was in one of the most secure places on the planet. And he tells us of the stark contrast between Biden's inauguration on the 20th of January this year with Obama's first inauguration, which he was also present at 12 years ago. You know, you basically had the Congress of the United States, the diplomatic corps and, and the president's friends and family. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very it was a very somber moment. Jim, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Can you remember how you felt the first time you set foot in the front quarter Teddy Hall? Well, uh, it was it was mind boggling. Uh, I I imagine that even for someone who grew up in in Great Britain, uh, you know, Oxford is such an iconic thing that it's probably a, a, a heck of a culture shock for an American only only more so, right? Nothing in our country has more than you know two hundred plus years of tradition, and so to be wandering around in a quad where you know traditions were developed six hundred years ago, where the accents are are exotic and un- Unusual, and all of a sudden you realize that you're actually the one with the accent where uh, the method of education is so radically different from what we're used to. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, one of the most significant, even though, of course, obviously the British and the American people are closely related. It was a moment of profound culture shock. I'm sure. And, and, and before you um, came to Teddy Hall, you went to Harvard University. What would you say the biggest differences, therefore, were between, say, Harvard and Oxford? Well, in some ways, Harvard and Oxford are maybe more closely related than most, right? Harvard is well over 350 years old. So there is that sense of uh, being somewhat ancient for the new world. And of course, Harvard was founded by a graduate of Cambridge University. So there is, there's probably more resonance there than there are with an awful lot of American universities. But, but of course, everything is different. For one thing, the American system of education focuses around lectures, particularly in the early years of university. You know, you can find yourself sitting in a lecture hall with uh, 300 of your fellow students um, it's also particularly as against uh, against Oxford, and of course, you know Harvard is one of the finest institutions in the United States. A much more significant percentage of American eighteen-year-olds are in university than is true in Great Britain. And so, uh, in the UK, when you go to university, you're going to sort of a maybe elite's not quite the right word, but you're going to a uh, in some ways a, a, a less diverse, and in in other ways much better educated group of people than you would be going to in an American university where something like, you know, almost half of the population goes on to some form of, uh, of university education. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't appreciated that, actually. So, so when you were at Harvard, you then decided to apply for Oxford and not only Oxford, but to be a, a Rhodes Scholar. Did anyone in particular influence you to make that decision, that bold decision to go for a Rhodes Scholarship? <laughs> you don't need a lot of persuasion. Uh, you know, two or three years, all expenses paid at Oxford University. That, 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 that's a proposition that more or less sells itself. But, um, you know, obviously, it's also here in the United States, um, you know, a Rhodes Scholarship because there's 32 of them awarded per year. It's a, a, I guess there's a great deal of prestige associated with it. So it's one of those things that, you know, if you're getting good marks in university and, uh, you know, in the Rhodes, there is this particular angle where you're supposed to be something of an athlete. This was one of Cecil Rhodes' idea that you had to be 
I think the will says uh, accomplished in manly sport in the right. language of a hundred years ago. <laughs> of course, uh, if, if, if you sort of meet those qualifications, it's something that's fairly natural to think about. And of course, you know, particularly given that element of the road scholarship, which points to sport, of course, points to places like Teddy Hall, where, where sport is, uh, is, is, is celebrated and, and, and uh, a big part of life. So did somebody tell you about the Rose Scholarship or did you just happen to know about it or how, how, does, the, how does that come about? I think it's pretty well known in the United States. Uh, again, it's not, it's not an exotic thing. It's sort of part of our culture here. Uh, probably slightly well known, than, better known than, than other scholarships like the Marshall Scholarship, for example, which sends a lot of Americans to the UK as well. Um, so no, it's not, again, it's not something that requires a lot of advertisement. If you're doing well uh, in university and, and uh, are involved in uh, extracurriculars and, and maybe have some form of um, athletic activity that you do, it's sort of, is some, it's one of those things that you, uh, that occurs to you at a minimum. Sure, sure. You mentioned Teddy Hall, obviously, because the, the sporting reputation. When you got to Teddy Hall, did you, did you think, yeah, this is living up to it? <laughs> well, you know, I think like so many Americans who arrive in Oxford, I had no idea what I was uh, getting into. And it is it is enormously daunting, even for those of us who had pretty elite educations in the United States. And it's enormously daunting. I mean, everything from, you know, the dining halls and high table to the gown, it's all profoundly foreign to somebody who, uh, who, who went to the United States, an American university. One of the wonderful things about the hall, of course, was that it is, I think, uh, uh, one of the more welcoming of the colleges because of its emphasis on sport. You know, an American who arrives at Oxford, what's the way I can put this sort of diplomatically? Uh, it's easier to get to know people in the United States than it is in Great Britain. And so uh, for me anyway, I was a rower. Uh, for me, having that uh, uh, link to my British fellow students was an enormously valuable way to get to know people. I, I sort of found, I, I hate to trade in cultural stereotypes, but uh, I sort of found in the United States, it's as natural as can be to go up to somebody in the dining hall and introduce yourself and say hello uh, in, in, in Great Britain. And there's a little bit more of, you know, you need, you need a reason. You need a reason yeah, to a strike up a friendship. Yeah, a little bit of a skeptical look. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, Teddy Hall obviously has a, has a uh, innately friendly culture uh, and and, that, and the sport element of it is a way, I think, that uh, uh, hall members get to know each other easily. Sure, sure. Can you tell me a little bit about life as a Rhodes Scholar? And also, were there many others at Teddy Hall who, who were Rhodes Scholars with you? So, no, there weren't. There was a South African who was there at the same time. You know, it was a relatively small college. I think there's fewer, at, uh, uh, fewer Rhodes Scholars at Teddy Hall than there might be at Christchurch or at New. And, and it's a it's sort of a wonderful surprise. You know, I mean, uh, most Americans wouldn't know much about the college system or about the colleges, but if they do, they've probably heard of the very high profile ones. They've heard of Christchurch, maybe. So uh, Teddy Hall is sort of an unknown. And, uh, you know, then you visit it and you see that it's actually this very intimate environment with particularly friendly people. Uh, some of the oldest architecture, of course, in Oxford University, and it kind of catches your your imagination. The Rhodes Scholarship, of course, offers you, uh, you know, I guess there may be, uh, I don't know, 90 or so Rhodes Scholars uh, in your uh, peer group at any given time in Oxford. So it does offer a natural uh, uh, group, a uh, peer group, uh, folks that you can hang around with and, and share stories of this exotic new land that you find yourself in with this yes. bizarre food. But, you know, and, and I know this is not a conversation about the Rhodes Scholarship, but, uh, you know, because of what we were talking about before, because it's this sort of mark of prestige, somebody said something, I think, that in which there is a lot of wisdom that is that, is that Rhodes Scholars are, 
uh, a group of, I think the individual might have said men back when it was men only, but, you know, uh, Rhodes Scholars are a group of men with, with fantastic futures behind them. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of a, there's a heavy expectation, you know, well, you, you're, you're going to be president of the United States or an admiral or, or you know, a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. Uh, and again, that's not the point of this conversation, but that definitely is a is a is a weight of expectation that lives on those shoulders. Absolutely. So, so, so you were you were this Rhodes Scholar, and you were studying your MPhil in Latin American studies. Um, apart from these two things, which probably kept you very busy, what else did you do in Oxford? Yeah, and even the academic course was a was a little bit of a challenge. I mean, of course, you know, if if someone not from the UK knows one thing about Oxford, it's probably the the, the PPE concentration, the major. Uh, and so I sort of started out with the idea of maybe doing PPE. And as it turned out, I'd done a program very similar to PPE as an undergraduate. So I, I had conversations. It's all very informal at Oxford, which again is very, uh, a little bit, a little bit alien to our uh, way of doing things. Um, but ultimately, I, after a number of conversations, I chose to have that MPhil. And, and I guess the, the thing that I found uh, most uh, different and surprising and in many ways wonderful was the sort of informal quality of the education. Again, in the United States, you're sitting in a lecture hall and you have set exams and, you know, it's all very regimented. Um, you know, I, I remember in my first couple of months thinking, okay, apparently I'm getting a master's, uh, you know, an MPhil in Latin American studies, but wait, where are the classes and what exactly am I supposed to do? Yes. I sort of felt like I could wander around for weeks and nobody would even remember that I was there. Much, much more uh, in, informal. What of course is wonderful is the, is the tutorial method. That is just, I mean, that is, I think how people learn and it's not a scalable model, but it also explains why Again, to many Americans arriving at Oxford, it's just shocking how articulate your British peers are, because of course they've grown up in this uh, tutorial system where they've had to defend their ideas uh, to a to a skeptical and knowledgeable person for a long time. <laughs> so, apart from you know your studies and and your Rhodes Scholar, I you know you mentioned earlier on that you were actually captain of the lightweight crew in Harvard for rowing. Did you row in Oxford? Uh, I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. No. And in fact, that was that was really one of the memorable things of the experience. Uh, I've got story after story, only some of which I can convey in a, in a, on a family medium uh, like this one uh, associated with being uh, being on the, uh, the Teddy Hall uh, uh, rowing team. I'd love um, to hear. I'd love to hear just one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, OK, I'll, I'll take you to one of, as we say over here, one of the PG stories. So, um, yeah, no, obviously, uh, just a just a wonderful and traditional thing. I mean, you, you know, again, you sort of you, you, these iconic images of, of Oxford rowing. It, it's a it's a spectacular feeling. It's also, by the way, one of the challenges, of course, of anybody who spends time in England generally or at Oxford is, is, is you know, you can easily get cooped up in your uh, in your flat or, you know, in the when it's pouring rain and, and chilly outside. So the opportunity to get some exercise and and, uh, and be out doing sports was wonderful. But uh, of course, you know, there's such a tradition of both rugby and uh, and rowing at the hall that you sort of feel you're participating in something that is really important to the place. No, and it was just magnificent. I still am close friends with a number of the people that I rode with at Teddy Hall, even though that was what, uh, you know, some 20, 30 years ago now. Um, yeah, the story I can tell you, this is a classic, classic Oxford story. <laughs> there, there are some that I probably shouldn't tell, but so I was elected captain of boats at Teddy Hall. And, you know, it's a di very different system than we have over here. So I'm elected captain of boats and we have this fancy dinner, black tie dinner jackets at uh, the Randolph Hotel, you know, and we're all needless to say, drinking quite a bit of wine and other things. And um, it turns out, and I didn't know this until I was standing in the hallway of the Randolph Hotel afterwards, turns out that there's a tradition that the rugby players who are also at the rowing dinner strip the new captain of boat uh, <laughs> completely naked, wrap him or her. I, I, I never actually thought about what might happen if it were 
her, but uh, wrap him in the college flag, march you down the street and throw you in the college well. So yes, I had the experience of being stripped in a matter of two or three seconds entirely of my clothing in the lobby of the Randolph Hotel, uh, carried down um, uh, uh, Broad Street and thrown into the college well. That is uh, uh, one of those experiences that I won't soon forget. Wow. And and at that very moment, do you think, I'm not so glad I've been elected or selected as captain of boats anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was, you know, if I didn't have a lot of time to think about what was happening. <laughs> yeah, well, well, well it's, given you, it's given you a memory, at least, for many years, for many years after. What, what year did you leave Oxford in? So I left in 1990. You left in 1990. And I believe you started off by going into investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Uh, that's right. What made you go from your MPhil in Latin American studies to be an investment banker? Well, probably more than anything else, a lack of creative thinking on my part. I think it may still be true, but an awful lot of uh, you know wayward, somewhat accomplished graduates uh, <laughs> find themselves either either in the finance world or in the consulting world. Uh, so it was probably as uh, you know a lack of creativity as much as anything else. But but actually, it was a bit more intentional than that. You know, I I had it in the back of my mind uh, in university that I would probably at some point go into public service, and I'm I'm not sure I would have known that it would be into elected office, but I knew that I wanted to go to work for the government at some point. However, I, I thought, you know, it's it, probably not a good idea to start there, you know, probably a good idea to develop some marketable skills. Turns out that's the case because people do, in fact, lose elections from time to time. Yes. Um, and uh, and so I, I really did want to get some experience in business prior to at some point getting into government service. And so, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I just thought, wow, I can learn an awful lot. And in fact, that turned out to be true. I, I um uh, you know, being part of Wall Street is not necessarily a political asset in the United States, uh, but uh, an awful lot of what I learned at the bank was actually enormously valuable subsequently in politics. Sure. And, and, and can you remember that moment when you thought, right, I'm done with banking. Now is my moment to go into public service. Well, you know, I'll tell you, here's one of the, the little kernels of wisdom I've achieved in my half century on the planet. That moment may not come. <laughs> you know, yes. you know you're, you're in the city or you're on Wall Street, you're in a you know, well-remunerated job and you get pretty comfortable to a certain lifestyle and you get good at what you do. You know, uh, too many, by the way, I think young people start out with, you know, all the idealism in the world and then they find themselves in, uh, in finance and then, you know, it's very, very difficult to well, get out. Well, I, so, I suppose the, um, the remuneration is quite hard to break away from. Exactly. I mean, no matter how uh, ascetic you may be, you you get used to uh, you get used to a certain level of of, of compensation. But um, you know, I, I I was helped by some external factors, including nine eleven. You know, my my offices at Goldman Sachs were literally three blocks away from the World Trade Center and. Uh, when we were struck with that terrorist attack on 9-11 on of 2001, first of all, the business collapsed subsequently with the economy. So that in some ways made it easier to think about alternatives. Um, but also it was one of those moments where you realize, you know, tomorrow is really promised to no man. And so, uh, you know, a number of things came together at that point to say, hey, you know, think back to what you thought you might want to do uh, and maybe take some steps to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So now now I, I believe you're a Democrat in the House of Representatives and um, representing Connecticut's fourth district. And is this your is this your sixth term? This is my seventh, seventh term, term, actually. Wow, I, I can't believe it as I say it. But yeah, I'm working on year number thirteen in the United States Congress. So wow. you know, I'm 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 still a relative novice in this, right. <laughs> in this institution. But and what, what do you see as your most important role as a congressman? 
Well, that's an easy one. Um, in as much as, as I sometimes tell school children, you know, my, my, my job description is, is in my title, right? I'm a representative, uh, which is an interesting distinction between uh, the United States Congress and, and Westminster. There, there's no doubt about what my most important role is, and that is to represent 750,000 people, as, as, as all members of Congress do, uh, in the House of Representatives. So, you know, whenever I'm off opining on national security or how the CIA ought to be running their businesses or how we ought to regulate our banks, my touchstone has to be what would the 750,000 people who elected me to this position want me to do? Uh, you know, and if you're somebody like me who actually thinks that, uh, you know, you've got, a, you've, you've got a, a, an intelligent thought or two to offer to the debate, you always have to go back to, yes, but remember, I'm a representative. Yeah, so how, how do you balance your time between representing those 750,000 people and representing or participating in national federal politics? I think I think the key is finding the nexus, right? You know, so uh, as I, I sit on the intelligence committee, that occupies a lot of my time. The, it's a it's a really interesting committee, in as much as we are civilians, we're not in the lo- in the chain of command of the CIA or the other intelligence agencies. Uh, we are civilians who are charged with, first of all, knowing and understanding everything that our intelligence community does, including some pretty. Uh, 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 dicey activities and, and of course, providing some oversight to that. So the key really is, you know, when you're talking about something very technical, like what should be the limitations on the ability of our intelligence operation to capture emails uh, abroad? Uh, our intelligence operations don't capture emails here in the United States, but as you might imagine, uh, they are interested in the emails that can be captured uh, out, outside of the United States. You know, what happens when, a, when, a, when an American's email is caught up in that, in that capture and so, again, the touchstone has to be, well, what would the good people of uh, Connecticut's 4th District uh, think about that and always go back to that as opposed to what Jim Himes may think about that? Sure. It's, a, it's an important distinction to be able to make because I'm sure it's quite easy to get persuaded by people here and there. And you just have to keep that in your at the forefront of your mind. Well, the hard part, of course, you know, what I just said is in, in some ways um, a little facile. Because the hard part is what happens when you sort of sense that half of your constituents are on one side of the issue and the other half are on the other. And of course, you never you never get to to that sort of precision. Uh, it's not like we poll every single issue out there. So the challenge, of course, is not how do I act? The challenge is what actually do my constituents think? Because politics is interesting in as much as, uh, you know, you have an intensity issue, right? There are those out there who are incredibly intense about their about their feelings and they show up in your office and they send you letters and emails and they're very angry at you and this sort of thing, but they actually represent a fairly small percentage of, of your overall constituencies. That, that's a challenge as well. Yeah, the fewer shout the loudest, usually. Exactly. Actually, when I, when I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years because I was working at the World Bank and I was just really always so struck by how passionate Americans are about politics compared compare with the British. It's probably what you were saying. They're much more friendly at Harvard, less so in England. I, I think it's the same thing. I, I, it just really blew me away because I was there for the George Bush and John Kerry election. And I just was so impressed by my colleagues, just how just the passion. Yeah, yeah, no. And sadly, as we've seen recently, um, passion is a good thing and a bad thing. Mm. You know, I think it's probably fair to say, and, and I might even extend this to, uh, to, to my friends on, on, on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, Politics have gotten particularly passionate in the last 10, 15 years. We all saw on January 6th something we imagined we would never see, which was the storming of, uh, of, of the Capitol. Uh, and of course, in Great Britain, uh, you know, the emergence of the very, very adamant uh, Brexit movement and people like Nigel Farage. You know, it feels like uh, in, in Western democracy, people have gotten a great deal more uh, uh, urgent and intense about their politics. Sure. So actually, actually, I'd love to touch on, on the storming of the Capitol. We're now recording this at the end of January, so it's still obviously very relevant and very fresh in our minds. 
Jim, were you anywhere near the Capitol when it happened? Oh, I was in. I was in the Capitol. Wow. Uh, and in fact, I was probably the third or fourth to last member of the House who was taken out of the House chamber. So no, it was very up close and personal for me as I was leaving and there was a problem getting us out because the chamber had been surrounded by these insurrectionists. And, you know, as I was leaving, they had piled furniture in front of the door and there's that iconic photograph of the police officers pointing their weapons at the door and expectations that people would burst through. So no, I, I was I was about as close to that event as, uh, as it was possible to be. I mean, did you know what was happening? Because you must have been just sitting there doing your normal day-to-day -day business, preparing for the inauguration or whatever you were doing. And suddenly, I mean, what was it like? Well, so it was, it was even more uh, heightened than that in the sense that we were actually doing something uh, unprecedented, which is having a very real debate over the results of the presidential election. You know, under our constitution, the Congress must essentially certify um, what the electoral college has determined based on the way people have voted. And yes, we have one of the most bizarre ways of electing the president of any country out there. Um, but the point is that, um, you know, never in our history, well, that's not quite true, you know, once or twice in our history, but have, uh, have the results of a presidential election been contested on the uh, floor of the House of Representatives in the United States Congress. And of course, in this case, it was it was an utterly specious point that the Republicans and the president were making. I mean, our country has been badly, badly damaged by by the, what we are now calling the big lie, this idea that the election was stolen by Joe Biden, you know, and, and this wasn't an election that was close, right? I mean, and, and again, we don't need to get into the peculiarities of how America elects its president, but Joe Biden wiped the floor with his opponent, you know, more than 8 million votes in excess of, of what Donald Trump received. And yet here we are having this unprecedented uh, argument over whether we should accept the results of the election. And when that happens, of course, we, we knew these people were in Washington. In fact, I'd gone to see the protests the night before just to get a feel for what these folks thought. And I mean, it was people, it's, it's something to think about. My profession requires me to be understanding and to reach out to those people that, that disagree with me. But I mean, these were people who were suffering under just a bizarre delusion. I mean, we don't have time to get into all the peculiarities, but you know, the election had been stolen. The, the facts were clear, even though there's not a single fact out there to suggest that that was the case. The movement was uh, uh, was saturated with evangelical Christianity. I mean, this was done for Jesus and Jesus is with you on this stuff. I mean, it was a truly, truly bizarre moment. Uh, and it was bizarre from a security standpoint. I'd always assumed I've been in the Capitol now for, uh, you know, coming on 13 years. I'd always assumed that, uh, you know, I was in one of the most secure places on the planet, that if there was a, an assault on the Capitol that, you know, as I said to a reporter, a red button gets pressed and all of a sudden everything is locked down and nobody can get in. But of course, the Capitol was breached and uh, every, every part of the Capitol was breached. Were you, were you nervous? Well, um, yeah, for, for certainly for a half hour there, I was nervous. I mean, there was that period when they were taking us out of the chamber and, and, and police officers had their, had their guns drawn and we could hear the banging. I, I heard the gunshot that killed the woman who had almost gotten into the chamber. Uh, so, yeah, there was a half hour there that was really pretty, uh, pretty frightening. You know, had the building been attacked by, you know, 200 trained veterans of Al-Qaeda, I probably would have been a, a, a great deal more frightened. But in fact, you know, while there were some very dangerous people in this mob, um, it was sort of a bizarre mob of uh, kind of guys who, you know, probably work at the Wendy's down the street who were just angry. So, you know, again, it wasn't quite the feeling that I would imagine it would be if the Capitol were subject to a coordinated and, and competent attack. But it was lethal and we could tell that it was lethal and could get worse. So, yeah, it was, yeah. It was there was a period of time there. What's even worse, though, is, I mean, even today I struggle and I'm quite, sure I, I'm quite certain I will for a long time. And by the way, this is something for all of us who live in representative uh, democracies to consider. I, it's still mind-blowing to me that that can happen in a system that we consider sort of as stable as uh, the one that I thought we had. 
I, I mean, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And, and, and just, you know, three weeks on, how, how is the mood now? Is it, has it calmed down or is there still a lot of anger on the streets or, yeah, what's the, what's the mood like? Well, it's, it's still a little shell-shocked, as you can probably tell in my recounting of what occurred. I mean, I think everybody's a little shell-shocked, including my Republican friends, who many of them were sort of complicit in, in, in promulgating this big lie uh, about a stolen election. Um, again, we'd sort of never seen anything in, in 250 years of history. We've never seen anything quite like that. So I would describe the mood as, as shell-shocked. Um, you know, fortunately, I think this very angry movement of, you know, it's, it's a little hard to talk about because it's a very diverse movement, but it's a, it's an ethno-nationalist thing. I mean, you know, this is a, a universally white uh, group of people. Yes, there is racism involved. There is also a great deal of economic anxiety, and it's a, it's a reaction to a, an immense amount of social change that we've happened. I mean, it's a, it's a retrograde, angry, sort of ethnic Christian movement. Um, it, it's sort of hard to talk about because, it, you know, you, 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 there's not one ideology. You know, it, it of course, that movement was promised uh, that uh, Joe Biden would not be president. And now Joe Biden is president. And so there's a great deal of internal fighting within that movement. I think that's actually good uh, because that uh, when that movement is unified, we, we, we see some of the implications. But, uh, yeah, it's still a moment of, of, of shell shock in the country. And, and um, talking about Joe Biden now being president, you know, normally when you watch the inauguration, you can see thousands and thousands of people outside um, the building, Capitol building. And this time it was just lots and lots of flags. I was wondering, were you actually at the inauguration yourself? And, and, and if you were, what was it like? Oh, okay. So you want to move on to the second cataclysm that we're dealing with <laughs> concurrently here, do you? <laughs> um, yeah, right. I mean, we forget in the aftermath of that uh, insurrection against the Capitol, we, we forget we're in the middle of a brutal, brutal uh, global pandemic here. Yeah. And of course, what you saw was precisely that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget my first inauguration was Barack Obama in January of 2009. And, and, and very literally millions of people, as far as the eye could see on the mall there, all the way back to the Potomac River. Uh, and now it was just uh, it was an armed camp because of what had happened uh, two weeks earlier. And yes, uh, you know, we weren't obviously best practices that we not sit next to each other. So, you know, you basically had the Congress of the United States, the diplomatic corps and, and the president's friends and family. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very it was a very somber moment and, and you were you were there yes yes goodness so um so i'm just i mean i could talk to you for hours about all this because I, I i just find it so unbelievably fascinating but i am aware of the time but i would like to ask you one more question on this um politics in the next few months you know you've got i'm reading in the newspapers you've got issues that there's no COVID plan. You've got civil unrest going on in the States. What are your greatest hopes for the next few months now that Biden and Harris are in? I guess um, uh, to be crisp in my answer, I hope that we get to a place in this country where we have a political debate. And I constantly tell school children, you know, don't worry that we argue. Uh, the argument in the United States, just as the argument in Westminster, is the core of our political system. It is that argument that it, when, it's, when it's functional, that leads to a good answer. So the argument is a good thing. But when the argument takes on almost religious-like intensity, where now what you believe is a matter of tribalism and faith rather than thought and analysis, and when the people who disagree with you are no longer the opposition, but they are evil or treasonous, 
Now you get to a place where we are today. So we need to step back away from that place. And I think that puts a burden on all of us. Um, it puts a burden on leaders to use rhetoric and language that is respectful and maybe even embracing of those people with different points of view. And quite frankly, I, I wrote a, an op-ed on CNN about this. It's up to American citizens. You know, at the end of the day, people like me who ask citizens to be elected, we respond to what it is that those constituents want. And, you know, too many Americans today, and I, I can't say if this is true in Great Britain, but too many Americans today no longer think about the issues. Issues like immigration, like tax policy, like whether we should be more or less in the Middle East with our military, they become um, catechism, right? And the information we absorb is no longer about testing our proposition. It's about self-gratification. I watch, I only watch the news shows or I only look at posts on Facebook that reinforce my pre-existing beliefs. I mean, that takes us to a, a medieval place. And we need as citizens to say, if I wake up in the morning and all I do is scratch my pre-existing itch, I'm being a crappy citizen, right? I need to expose myself to different points of view if I'm going to be a responsible steward of this concept of American citizenship. Well, I'm so proud that we have a Teddy Hall man who's reminding people of that importance. <laughs> it is very important, that important message and how we should be listening to all debate, not just reinforcing our own opinions. So now, um, Jim, I'm going to bring you back to Teddy Hall. As I said at the beginning, this whole series is about the, the spirit of Teddy Hall. And I'd just love to ask you what you think the spirit of the Hall is that we will talk about. Well, to me, again, I'll come back to something I said right up front, and, and maybe this is a uniquely American perspective, but to me, Teddy Hall has a degree of intimacy, and I don't mean that obviously in a physical sense, um, although there's probably some stories there as well, but, uh, <laughs> but it has a degree of intimacy that I think is unusual at Oxford and, and unusual in the UK. It's, it's, it's welcoming because maybe it's a small community. It's, it's not one of the you know huge name, globally known colleges like Christchurch or, or St. John's. There's just a family sensibility at Teddy Hall that was enormously valuable to an alien who landed there in in 1988. And I I find even my 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 British friends that I was there with they they remember it with a great deal of uh, a, a great deal of uh, almost emotional attachment because of that family like quality of. Uh, of what it was like, and 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 when I say family-like quality, I really do mean it. I mean, I remember more than uh, more than one uh, ugly night at the pub, and that sort of thing. Sure, yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> we were, yeah. If if you could remember that ugly night at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, do you keep in touch with your British and American Teddy Hall friends? Then I do. I probably have a half dozen uh, great great friends. In fact. Uh, uh, one of my closest friends by the name of Laura Godsall. I got to know her because she was a rower in, uh, in 1988, 1989. Um, uh, we still, uh, my wife and I, my, we still vacation with her family. And uh, there's probably another half dozen uh, um, British classmates that I, that, I, that I keep up with. And yes, Americans, you know, one of the wonderful things about Teddy Hall is it used to, I don't know if it still does, participate in this Stanford junior year abroad program. So you actually uh, go to Oxford to meet other Americans uh, and they, uh, you know, the, the commiseration that happens in February when you're in your 14th day of straight rainfall uh, leads to some pretty strong relationships with uh, with fellow Americans as well. And, and have you have you been back to the hall since you left? 
I have, I have. I, I try to get back to Oxford at any at any opportunity. Uh, I've been I've been back, uh, uh, and whenever I'm there, I stop by the hall. And you know, actually, the hall does a wonderful job of coming to the United States. So there's a Teddy Hall dinner in New York City pretty much every year. Sadly, not this past year, but the principals have uh, have always come over to New York, and that actually provides a, a an opportunity to get together with people uh, in the area, hall uh, hall alums uh, in, in the area. So yes, I do I do get back. Fantastic. And when you go back, have you noticed any um, change, you know, in the halls since 1988 when you were there? Oh, heaven forbid! We can't have change at an Oxford college, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, honestly, I haven't spent enough time and really sort of scrutinized the curriculum or or what people are doing. Um, I, I will I will tell you one change that I've noticed in the hall. Um, this is actually, I think, a good thing, particularly for a college that isn't, uh, you know, isn't one of the wealthier colleges. Oxford, and, the, and I think in general, um, but certainly the hall has gotten an awful lot smarter about the dreaded development office, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, here in the United States, we're used to, uh, you know, you're about three days into your freshman year in college before your college starts asking you for money beyond the tuition that you're paying. Uh, and I actually think that's a really good thing. I mean, let's face it, all of us get uh, educations at places like Teddy Hall uh, that are far, far more valuable than what we pay for them. Uh, so I think the, uh, the tradition, and I know it's annoying to get those letters and those phone calls, but the tradition of then supporting your college or your university so that the people who come behind you can uh, have as good or better experience as you uh, had uh, uh, is a wonderful thing. And, and yes, I think Teddy Hall in the sort of 25 years I've been watching it has really come into the 21st century in terms of development and making sure that it's financially stable with the help of its uh, graduates. Yeah, I mean, the, the development office at the moment is doing a fantastic job and really trying to, you know, um, engage alumni, I suppose, more, as you say, along the American model. Yeah, that's right. And it's a it's a win win. Right. I mean, you know, the smart development offices, of course, develop opportunities for uh, for alums to, you know, to, to bask in that nostalgia of those crazy university days. So it's a I think it's a it's a real win win. Absolutely. So, um, Jim, I know you're an extremely busy man, but so I'm going to just ask you two more things that that's all right before you go. Firstly, I'd love to know your favorite three places, one in the world, one in Oxford and one in Teddy Hall. Wow. Uh, all right, let's do that in reverse order. I, I think my, my favorite place in Teddy Hall, uh, it's a tie between the, uh, the old library, which was just, you know, it's just such a magnificent spot. So, so, so sort of, you know, suffused with history. Um, and I remember we used to do formal dinners in there and that's, uh, you know, that's just a remarkable experience. I'd have to sort of call it a tie between that and, uh, you know, the churchyard, the churchyard uh, in the college there. It's a, you know, it's a bizarre thought to think of that part of your college is actually a, whatever it is, 900 year old churchyard, uh, you know, and uh, with all that that implies. Uh, so anyway, um, that I, I would say that about Teddy Hall. Oxford, you know, I used to um, take little trips outside of Oxford, in particular, especially since I lived up in this direction, I would I would go into Port Meadow in all weathers. And, you know, there's that old, um, I want to say it's maybe Binzi, just above Binzi, you've got that old, uh, the ruins of the abbey that are there along the the Isis. And, uh, you know, if you want to, you can go on up to forget the order, but the perch and the trout, I could spend a weekend day just wandering around. And, and again, through American eyes to see an abbey that is probably, you know, thousand years old. And there's that little well, uh, you know, it just, you just, you, you know, it's just one of those mind blowing experiences. So that in Oxford, that was probably uh, it, with much to choose from one of my, you know, that whole area of Port Meadow with the pubs and the, and the, you know, medieval ruins was, uh, was magnificent. Now world, that's, <laughs> Or America. You can go for America if you want. Oh, oh. Um, 
uh, golly, I, I, uh, I'm going to do something terrible here. I'm going to irritate all of my American uh, uh, constituents and all of my British friends by saying, if you ask me to, if you ask me to name 10 wonderful places in the world, you know, I'm not sure it would be first, but somewhere on that list, by the way, can you tell that I do politics for a living? Um, <laughs> anyway, we're, we're really uh, balancing out the the, the impact of the statement. <laughs> so I'm going to pick the Musée Rodin in Paris. Uh, Paris, of course, is a spectacular place on the planet. But the Musée Rodin, you know, the other museums in Paris sometimes are so overwhelming. But this is a museum where you can go and you can spend a day. I, I happen to like Rodin. I happen to love sculpture. Uh, and so if you ask me to pick my top 10 places on the planet, I would probably put the Musée Rodin in Paris on that list. That'd be, that'd be one of them. And finally, if you could guarantee one thing about Teddy Hall that would never change, what would it be? I would absolutely choose um, what I've been alluding to. I keep using the word intimacy. I know it's not quite the right word, um, but, um, but I, I, I would choose that, that, um, that culture which includes a very welcoming culture of interaction, right? So back in my day, there were some dons who had been around for 70 years or something, and they had no reason in the world to talk to me, but they came from a different era. They were, you know, some of them were veterans of World War II back in the 80s. And, you know, they, they went out of their way at dinners and stuff. They didn't need to do this to talk to me, to tell me their stories. And I think that, um, I think that that's invaluable. I mean, it's one thing to, to read Milton it's another to hear the stories of, 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 of somebody who comes from a radically different time or a radically different place. And again, that's something that maybe on this side of the Atlantic culturally happens more easily than it happens in the UK, where the social system is a little more stratified and manners are a little bit more, uh, a little bit more guarded. And, and so that just that human interaction um, that, that I experienced uh, every single day, every single night at the hall was, uh, was probably the most valuable thing that I, that I got out of the hall. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Ali. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Congressman Himes and his remarkable journey from Harvard to Oxford to investment banking and now the United States Congress. Our next episode will be with General Sir Michael Rose, who came up to Oxford in 1960 and has since commanded the UN peacekeeping in Bosnia, negotiated with the Argentinians during the Falklands War and describes the Iraq war as hopeless. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.